Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. My guest today is Michael Garfield, a writer, musician, artist, poet, philosopher, paleontologist, futurist, who's setting the seeds for a planetary renaissance. With incisive eloquence, he takes the threads of technology, science, and the wonders of the natural world to weave together a cosmic story of life and our role in it, one that needs to be shared more widely. He's the host of the Santa Fe Institute's Complexity Podcast and his own show, Future Fossils. Both of them are brilliant and have done a lot to inform my own thinking. He's also recently joined the Long Now Foundation as a community manager, a long-term cultural institution formed to foster long-term thinking and responsibility for the next 10,000 years and beyond. If you are unfamiliar with Michael's work or his way of thinking, there's plenty of places to start, but two entryways I'd recommend would either be episode 145 of Future Fossils, Weaving a New Prehistory to Rewild the Future, or his essays from his book, How to Live in the Future, both of which I'll link in the show notes. Speaking of show notes, I don't think I've ever had to find links to so many things mentioned in a podcast. Michael's erudition and breadth of interests is palpable and hard to keep up with. How one finds the time to do as much as he seems to do is a question, now that I think about it, I really should have asked him in this episode. In our conversation, we cover the coronavirus and the epistemic crisis we're in, community and fragmentation, Evolution as a multi-billion year remix project, psychedelics as training wheels for transhumanism, nested complexity, restoring democracy and regenerative communities, rewilding the future, and lastly, the power of ideas. You can find Michael online at Michael Garfield and at michaelgarfield.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to keep up to date with new podcast episodes, and anything else I might have going on, uh, please head to my website and sign up to my newsletter or follow me on social media at Sam H. Barton or at underscore talk of today. At least that's what it is on Twitter because some gossip columnist person in 2010 got at talk of today and hasn't been active since. So I'm going to try to get that handle. But uh, yeah, right now I just have to resort to the lowly underscore. I've noticed that uh, in this episode and a couple of my more recent ones, um, my audio quality hasn't quite been up to scratch. So please bear with me um, while I figure this out. Um, It should get better uh, over the next few episodes. So apologies to you audiophiles out there. Anyway, um, I really hope that you enjoy this conversation with Michael Garfield. Uh, I had been looking forward to it for quite a while, and I feel that this will be the first of many. So... Without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Michael Garfield. Well, Michael, very excited uh, for you to be here um, and to have this conversation. Um, so, when I go online and I read, you know, stuff from uh, many different people, um, there are a few who I think talk of nature and how we are related to it and our place in the world um, with a degree of scientific rigor, but also um, poesy uh, than you. Um, And I'm really curious about um, how this 
how you came to be in a way, because I, I think you've got such a talent for, for bringing science and um, the, I guess, for lack of a better term, the religious, the religious experience or the religiosity that is associated with being and the interconnectedness with us in the world. Um, so I understand that you, you began, I guess, as a, a paleontologist at the age of two. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you know, I think if we're going to take it a little further, uh, I am, uh, my brother and I are frequently comment on the fact that our parents who split up when I was 13, uh, in many ways seem like they should never have been together. And so I feel like there was a, they're both wonderful people, uh, and, and now happily remarried, but it's just such a strange thing that they were together for 17 years, given their apparent incompatibility. And, you know, so I think that there is something, uh, in my life, a kind of a deep current in my mythology that is about the reconciliation of impossible opposites. So I think that that kind of speaks to your, you know, science and religion thing, you know, that it's like, uh, on, on one hand, obviously my parents love each other, still loved each other very much much. Uh, and, uh, you know, on the other hand, if I were to look up, for example, to, to tip my hand and, and demonstrate my woo right out of the gate here, uh, you know, if you look up the secret language of relationships, which is this very bizarre, uh, effort at a kind of, uh, garage empiricism that, uh, Gary, Sh- I want to say, was it Gary Schneider? And Don Juiced, I forget the two authors, but they, they're like long-term practicing uh, therapists and astrologers, one or both of them. And they did this kind of survey of 20 years of practice and like thousands and thousands of relationships, the people that have come into their relationship practice and extracted from this correlations with uh, the weeks that people were born. And anyway, it says about my parents, like it was like Winston Churchill and Hitler were the (laughs) historical examples of like people born on these two weeks, like they cannot help but go head to head. And so um, at any rate, yeah, I, you know, I was uh, one of my parents was Presbyterian and the other was Jewish and neither, I mean, one was practicing and and one really wasn't uh one is extremely good with money and one is just a complete romantic you know with no money sense whatsoever and uh, i think that there was you know so i feel within myself the 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 project of the synthesis of seemingly irreconcilable perspectives and that very much has that's become more and more obvious in my adulthood. Uh, and so, you know, so yeah, I grew up with a real sense of wonder and, and imagination and, you know, actually was in Australia when I was four, uh, because at the time my father worked for a cruise line and, um, I remember being in Australia and having this like vivid sense that I am walking in the footsteps of, of dinosaurs and that like, it felt like Australia is such a vibrant biodiverse place. And I remember feeling like I was just around the corner from dinosaur living dinosaurs, you know, and it was, uh, so at any rate, you know, that's, yeah, I think that, that, you know, there's, um, there's, I don't know, I guess the dinosaur thing came out of, 
uh, as near as I can figure, a fascination with the very large, loud and scary, you know, like a lot of kids are also into, and as I was also into construction equipment, like earth movers and that kind of stuff. And I remember when I met my childhood role model, Robert Bacher, uh, who was, um, kind of a celebrity dinosaur hunter, uh, wrote dinosaur heresies, was responsible for getting dinosaurs walking upright in the public imagination, feathered, warm-blooded, caring for their young, uh, you know, played a huge role in that. Um, he, uh, I met him at the Palm Springs Museum of the Desert in Southern California at the age of three when my family was was there on a business trip. And at the same time, he was part of this larger exhibit with uh, the Dynamation animatronic dinosaurs. So it was like, it was, you know, they were, they were touring the United States uh, with these life-size robotic replicas of dinosaurs that were making all of these very loud, scary noises. And I was already into dinosaurs at the time, but that really sealed it for me was, you know, this sense of being like, you know, like a child, you know, just a, a magical encounter, you know, before I, you, one really learns to differentiate between, uh, you know, what adults would consider fictional and non-fictional, uh, or real and simulacrum. And so I, you know, that was, that was the, the weekend that really sealed it for me. And Robert Bacher has always been a profound enthusiast of child science and really, really encouraged me, um, to, to go deeper with my study. And then years later, um, met me and my mother in, uh, in his hometown of Boulder, Colorado for like a four hour lunch and just treated me to like answering all of my questions about the, you know, the science of Jurassic park, which is a film on which he was a, a principal consultant. Um, and, you know, drew me, he was an amazing anatom. He still is an amazing anatomical illustrator who, who taught anatomy at Johns Hopkins and also taught the Talmud in its original Hebrew. Um, and so he himself is one of these people that, you know, is, is a lifetime sober world-class researcher who also happened to be uh, you know, deeply ensconced in religious scholarship for whatever reason. And, you know, when I would later on in my teen years, when I was working with him in, in Wyoming, in Como Bluff, which is this, this uh, legendary site for dinosaur fossil research that where Stegosaurus was discovered back in, I think the 1870s and so on. Um, I, I remember him like, you know, incessantly quoting Beavis and Butthead and show tunes and like just completely, uh, you know, a, a, a cultural and scientific gourmand who just devoured and regurgitated everything from all different quadrants and really, really instilled upon, uh, instilled in me a sense of what it is to be a Renaissance man or Renaissance person, you know, gave these extraordinarily captivating talks where he would stand up in front of an audience with this sheet of butcher paper and draw everything he was talking about on the spot. And, you know, I think that that really, that really uh, changed the way that I thought about education and the way that I thought about public performance, you know, influenced my later work as a, as a, a painter, 
on site at festivals and, you know, working in front of people, creating stuff in front of people as they watch. So at any rate, you know, he and I, uh, I haven't spoken to him in years. Um, I, he's very difficult to get a hold of and, and, uh, you know, kind of reclusive. And, and I think, you know, he and I had kind of a, a tragic falling out in my early twenties, but I still have the highest respect for him as someone who has encouraged countless young minds into the, the, you know, the, the process and into the sort of initiation into this, uh, kind of desert mysticism, you know, that I really, I really found myself in a, uh, a kind of a mosaic exodus kind of a sense more at home out in the badlands of Wyoming than I felt at home in uh, Orlando and then later Kansas city for the rest of the other 51 weeks a year as a teenager. Like I became kind of a wild animal under his tutelage. And um, so, you know, that's, that's where it came in. It's like paleontology rushed into my, my mind and heart along with all of these other things, along with this, this sense of the, the sacredness of the living world and the sense of the, uh, the power of communication to inspire and to enlighten people. And the sense that you can have a conversation in which you're quoting the Bible and Beavis and Butthead and like anatomical textbooks in the same sentence, you know, it's just like, that's, that's where I come from. That's the soil I grew up in. I love it. So yeah. I love it. That's a, uh, I think more um, science communicators should, um, I guess, engage with others with, um, you know, such a repertoire, but also just to, what am I trying to say here? To, to not be so stifling and boring, but like to, to really bring in the, the, uh, like all the cultural tools that we have available to just make shit interesting. I think, I think you do a great job of that in, uh, in your podcast. So I'm, I'm very curious about how, like, so you had this deep, deep fascination with um, paleontology and uh, which I could just say science writ large. When, like, were you always an artist or when, how did that, how did the art become, how did art become a big part of your life? I mean, I was drawing before I met Bob Bakker. Uh, I was, you know, my mom tells me that, you know, some of the stuff I was doing at age two, like was like a recognizable stegosaurus or that I would draw mountains that looked to her like the, the mountains, not of our hometown outside of Los Angeles at the time, but of like ancient Chinese classical paintings, you know? And so I don't know, I, I, I was very observant. I carried around a sketchbook with me always as a child. I was very lucky to have really excellent public schooling in Orlando in a, in a, a state which otherwise had really poor education. Uh, but I had a, just an extraordinary teacher, Aneta Igu for uh, three consecutive years in grade school. And so I was with the same class of students and the same teacher. And she was another person who really encouraged a sort of ecumenical approach to learning, you know, an integrated what does ecumenical mean. Oh, ecumenical in like a religious sense of just like all, you know, embracing everything, you know, like seeing it all as sort of one, mm -hmm. you know, one, one mountain that okay. we're all climbing together. Um, yeah, yeah. and so that's, you know, that's the way that, yeah. Like so considering she like, the, like the way most people think of the world and I try to understand it, they break it down into these little compartments and then they investigate those little, those little, um, bounded circles. And then, I mean, you have it. to, you, you yeah, have yeah, to, it's like it's, 
you know, she taught us Greek and Latin root words in the second grade. Uh, she, you know, she, she integrated the subjects in a way that I remember Bob Bacher ranting about the importance of in the, you know, in the field later on when I was with him that, you know, they, both of them really felt that it was important to teach this sort of, um, holistic, uh, integral, unified vision, you know, to see with whole eyes. And of course, like in order to do that, you have to, like you just said, you have to learn all of these things. You have to, you know, zoom in and observe these things with detail, but like part of that structure of education, part of that learning process is to constantly zoom in and back out, you know, and, and like never lose sight of the forest for the trees or the trees for the forest. And so I was very lucky to have that, you know, in a life that has otherwise been, you know, very sort of discontinuous, you know, I've moved around a lot. Um, it's, you know, I've, I've suffered a lot of, uh, you know, relational and economic traumas, but, uh, I'm lucky to have had, you know, a very whole and continuous, uh, education as a small child, you know, actually, you know, my Aneta Igu, I met her even before I was in the second grade because she was hosting a summer educational program, running an archeological expedition in her own backyard in Orlando, where she had a, me and a bunch of other kids digging up a bunch of stuff that she had buried in our yard, in her yard. <laughs> and so it was like a way of teaching us about, you know, history and art and her, her house is like a cabinet of curiosities, like the most bizarre, you know, stuffed creatures and, and like parlor tech tools, like this little thing you like electrocute yourself with. That was like a parlor toy from the 19th century and like amazing art from all over the world. She went with her husband, her now husband, um, to Morocco for their honeymoon when they were married after my second grade year and brought us back all of these Moroccan coins and just like really inspired this sort of, you know, this questing, uh, global inquiry, you know, and we were, we were doing, uh, at, at any rate. So, you know, the art thing comes, I think the art was really encouraged, you know, my, my house, I always had art supplies around. My mom was made very sure of that. And then as school got more and more boring and routine and, and kind of industrial, as I went into middle school and high school, then the art buoyed me through it, you know, and I, I was always taking notes and, and drawing at the same time and, and, uh, you know, never considered that I would become a professional artist in any way. Never thought that always thought I was going to be an academic, you know, that I would come out of this with a PhD and a class of paleontology undergrads that I'm leading into the field every summer. But I continued to doodle dinosaurs and, and uh, biomechanical xenomorphs and, and, you know, anything like I love like detailed stuff, you know, fine pen work. And, uh, you know, that, that really got me through hundreds of hours of immense, boring, just, you know, uh, just awful, awful classes. Um, as well as I should add something I figured out in college, I hated my second chemistry semester. I hated the teacher. Uh, I, I found it just the most, it was an enormous classroom, like 900 people or something insane at the university of Kansas. And this guy thought he was the funniest thing, but he was just awful. And, um, I remember looking at 
this guy sitting in the front row of that course, just pounding away at his laptop, wrapped, just amazed, totally captivated by this professor. And I realized this was a really important lesson. I realized that something about this course made it this guy's favorite course. And so that it was like my opinion of this professor and this material was my opinion. It was not like an objective reality and that there was some way that I could method act my way into giving a damn about chemistry too. And that like, all I had to know was that there was one person who really, really cared about it and then try and get into their head and that that's its own form of art. And in ways, in a way that like transcending the medium through which I create I think that getting people into other people's heads is, you know, maybe the most artistic thing or like perhaps even the fundamental purpose of art itself, you know, that there's something about, about art as a communication of a state of consciousness. And so, you know, this, this process of being able to take the perspectives of other people is, I think the, the rail that all of us are on in terms of developmental psychology, you know, it's like a measure of how wise you are is like how well you are capable of getting out of your own head and into someone else's head and then getting back and then like understanding the relationship between those perspectives, I think is really, really key. And I think that that's like, again, I think that that's in some way the, uh, the primordial, art form that uh, transcends the the means of all of its manifestations. Mm. That um, I, th- I think that point is a good springboard to kind of talk about the times in which we're, we're living in and how it seems at least for so many, you know, perhaps myself included that it, it can just be so like, next to impossible to really get in the heads of, um, those people that we see on the other side of our, on our um, looking glasses, our, our smartphones, and to really see what is driving them to, to say such things. How do they see the world? And then reconciling that, those, you know, the plurality of viewpoints and making some productive use of them. Like we are in your, um, what, I think in your piece on the coronavirus, um, you write that, you know, we're in an, an epistemic crisis. And I think we've been in one for, for a while. It's just that the coronavirus has really made it abundantly, abundantly clear. And that it's not just um, the laymen um, who uh, may be right or wrong, but it's those that are, you know, by institutions uh, described as experts, those that really should be the ones who are saying this is right and this is wrong. And we, you know, the, the emperor is obviously wearing uh, no clothes because uh, we've, we can just see that what, what they're saying is, um, is nonsense, you know, like the who saying like, you should not wear masks uh, for instance. <laughs> um, and you know, you, you're right that expertise is who and how you know, and the pandemic makes this obvious. So perhaps you can just talk about um, what you were, what you were kind of saying there, and this this what's what's your take on the epistemic crisis? And maybe we can come to a way out of it. But um, just describe this the, the situation that we're in from from your perspective, because I'm I'm really curious to to hear about it. Yeah, well, you know, somebody that I have followed and and read a lot of and and listened to all of his available lectures online and was lucky enough to have 
uh, for a, I've interviewed actually three times over the years, twice before I started Future Fossils, and then once on Future Fossils podcast is the uh, historian and poet and mythographer William Irwin Thompson, who left his position at MIT in the in the 70s. He, he called himself an atheist at the Vatican because like some of his earliest writings were extremely critical of this technocratic, elitist, globalist approach that was developed there. Uh, and, uh, you know, espoused elsewhere at like the club of Rome and, and some of these places and really, really has shaped the world that we live in today. Uh, you know, a sense of, uh, being able to use a systems view for social and ecological engineering, uh, is far, far from what I would call a humble approach to the mystery of our, our reality. And so he left and he started this this uh, transdisciplinary think tank for the immunization of planetary culture called the Lindisfarne Association. And I'll send you a link to the the collected Lindisfarne tapes, which are up on the EF Schumacher Center for New Economics website, which I binged uh, while on tour, uh, on festival tour across the U.S. in 2013. I was just like all I listened to all summer. And in those tapes, he... He talks about how we're, we are moving out of, you know, he looks at like major world ages in the history of civilization. And he says, actually, right now we're moving out of this, um, you know, the kind of Newtonian worldview and into a chaos and complexity worldview, what he called a, you know, chaotic dynamical world age that's defined less by the trade of ideas through maritime commerce and more through the, you know, the, the trade of identities in a world wet, you know, wed to itself through electronic communication. And so he saw in the 1970s and, you know, a coming age of, you know, increasing, you know, he's very early to the tip as far as, yeah, you know, Pressure. Yeah, the the uh, well, he you know that was around the same time that the limits to growth came out. I think 1972, and he was writing some of his early work, uh, you know, at the edge of history, in like I think came out in '73. You know, so like very much stewing in the same. Uh, worldview where he was, you know, he was talking to, you know, some of these people like Lynn Margulis, who was the biologist that changed our understanding of evolution, you know, the modern complex cell being uh, a symbiotic collaboration between different bacteria. He was working with Stuart Kaufman, who was at, you know, the Santa Fe Institute and worked on um, self organization and the origins of life. He was working with uh, Paolo Soleri, the visionary architect who studied under Frank Lloyd Wright and then went on to build Arcosanti, which was this this sort of uh, visionary project in Arizona that was a, a sort of post-car, um, you know, atavistic in a way reclamation of the human scale. And so anyway, this is the point is that he was working with all of these people who were looking at at history and evolution and natural history through this multi-scale lens. You know, that was actually around, I think the same time Power of 10 came out in 1974, that that film that zooms in and out from the sub subatomic level out to the, the size of the whole universe and then back. And um, so this, this kind of thinking around also Stuart Brand was a part of this organization, you know, Stuart at uh, who founded long now, um, 
the Long Now Foundation, uh, which I'm also affiliated with out of, you know, some amazing serendipity. Stuart was the guy who wrote the petition to the United States government to get the first images of Earth from space declassified because he, he believed that being able to look at the entire blue marble of our planet would be trans would would be a transformative event for humans would would be, you know, the image the the dominant symbol of the 20th century you know the most profound and transformative thing and he was right like yeah. we're looking you know we're looking at you know a movement part of part of this um you know my friends who are like scholars of uh, indigenous wisdom uh like my friend violet luxton in uh california talks about you know the the difference between the sort of western mental approach and the indigenous approach in which you know we think of time uh, you know, in a kind of like linear way in the West and we, and then time and, and the cosmos are understood as, you know, contained within like the medicine wheel, the sacred hoop, you know, by, by most indigenous peoples. And so at any rate, that's, that's kind of a tangent, but the point is that Bill Thompson and, and a lot of these people that he was thinking with were thinking about the scale at which we exist. And, you know, one of the things that has happened is that, you know, the modern era and the, the, you know, the first two industrial revolutions really moved us out of a human scale world, you know, a world where we're surrounded by things that, you know, are kind of like we evolved to be surrounded by, you know, farm animals, this kind of thing, you know, uh, living in villages of, you know, Dunbar number or sub Dunbar number people, you know, we can remember all the people that we see on a regular basis. We have relationships, intimate relationships with them. And the, uh, the shift to urban life and urban life as dependent on these massive systems that we cannot see basically, you know, what Timothy Morton calls hyper objects, you know, like the electrical grid, you know, which we can, we can't, perceive it all at once, you know, um, we can only catch like flickers, you know, intimations of it the way that like a cell can only sort of, you know, intuit the body that it lives within, you know, we've moved out of this age where things make sense to a, your average human being and into an age where it's, it's almost better that we characterize the postmodern world, uh, what, what Bill Thompson called the meta industrial civilization as one that, you know, is navigated more like the pre-modern demon haunted world that Carl Sagan was writing about, you know, where it's, it's beyond our ability to actually effectively wield the tools of rationality that we developed over the last 400 years to address things because it's not a Newtonian system. It's not linear and orderly and, and, you know, cause and effect don't work in this like, you know, intuitive way. It's like, there's all these second, third, fourth order consequences. There's like, you know, all of these things that, you know, how many degrees out can you think about all of the factors that have caused a situation, you know? And, and so like, we, our brains have, have largely been tuned to develop easy narratives, you know, to assign kind of local, 
you know, personified blame or, or like a responsibility. You know, we look for charismatic leaders. We want to put our faith in the president, even when we shouldn't, you know, like, uh, and not just the president, but, you know, people, leaders. Yeah. Yeah. Someone, we want someone to hold our hand through the insanity, the turbulence, the, the, the chaos and metamorphosis that we're living through. And it's just not appropriate anymore. You know, it's, and so we're, you know, we're at a really uh, difficult moment because this is a, these kind of things can be taught, you know, this kind of learning, it's like writing, you know, it's like you can learn to write as an adult. It's just harder. And the kids that are growing up now as, as digital natives are going to have a much easier time navigating the complexities of the world that we live in. But they will still be subject to the same cognitive and attentional biases that we suffer from because those things are kind of baked into us evolutionarily, by which I mean, you know, we, we tend to develop, uh, what, uh, SFI external professor Mazarin Banaji has called implicit biases, you know, basically like stereotypes that we don't realize that we're carrying around and acting on because it's easier for us to not treat every single situation we encounter as a novel situation to have to like treat it as unique. Uh, and so we develop these, these rules about the world. And mostly we don't even realize that we've, we've done this. And even those of us who think, Oh, I'm a very, you know, uh, fair humanist kind of person. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not a racist. Well, the psychological evidence suggests that you don't actually have any control over this because if you're exposed to racist stereotypes, they still affect the way that you are subconsciously processing, uh, information, say, you know, you run into someone in a dark alley or you're engaging with someone on social media only, you know, with only their profile picture to go off of. And like, especially in, in time compressed encounters where you don't have a lot of time to like sit down and break bread with somebody and get to know them. We rely more and more on our stereotypes, on our shorthands. And so the faster the world uh, asks us to run in order to keep pace with things, the more likely we are to treat one another unfairly simply because, you know, we're not, we're not taking the time. And, and then also, you know, the, the, the same is true. I go into much more detail about this uh, in a podcast I recorded with comedian Shane Moss, who has this amazing show called Here We Are. Uh, we, we had a conversation called uh, Science Versus Human Nature, where we like went into detail about all these, these biases. But like one of them is that we, we, we have like a local information gathering bias where it's better like generally speaking, um, it's more important that we are in alignment with the friends and coworkers and family members that, upon whom we socially depend than it is that we're in alignment with whatever objective reality is. I mean, there are obviously plenty of counterexamples, but like when it comes to political elections, uh, uh, SFI professor Mirta Galasic, with whom I had a great conversation on complexity podcast, some of her work looked at how, you actually get, and this is to your point about like expertise is who, you know, and you know, like what kind of history you've had and so on that, um, she found that 
You can poll people and ask them who they're going to vote for in an election, but the results that you're going to get are less accurate than if you ask them who they think their friends are going to vote for. Because ultimately on the day before the election, a lot of people flip the script because they realize that they would rather not argue for the next four years with everyone they know. And that it's just easier to like toe the line and vote the way you think all your friends and family are going to vote. And that this kind of thinking is going on all the time. So like people, uh, another piece of research that she did was on uh, how people of privilege tend to believe that everyone in the world has the same privilege because those are the people they're hanging out with. And then they're projecting that local reality onto everybody else. And so this is not uh, this is not actually just about financial privilege. Like if you're happily married, you assume that more people are happily married than actually are. And it's equally true in the opposite direction. It's equally true that if life is just shitting on you, then you're going to think that it's that more people are suffering in the way that you are suffering, you know, and you see this all the time with people that are like, this is a, this is like a suicide hotline thing, right? You know, like that, you're having a hard life. So you just assume that the world is horrible. You know, you don't trust other people's happiness. You know, you don't, you don't see it as an invitation into a separate state of consciousness, you know? And so there's this, this thing about, well, the fact is if you, because of the mathematics of any kind of privilege, if you're actually more, you're equally biased, but more likely to be right statistically if you assume that other people are suffering in the way that you suffer. But we, you know, but it's just, it's just one of these things where it's like, you know, we, we basically are looking for all of these shorthands. We project, you know, our reality onto everyone else's reality. And, you know, we, we have, because of the media ecosystem in which we live, um, we have been funneled into an even narrower field of attention than we're capable of and even more reactive and inflammatory discourse than we're capable of. And so, you know, we are in a really tough spot where we have to work against the entropic currents that, you know, of our sort of technosphere and its wants and the institutional agencies that we're sort of embedded in and say like, no, I'm taking a stand like Doug Rushkoff with his, his team human podcasts. He's like, no, I'm not going to do what Google wants me to do. Like the people inside Google don't even want Google to do what Google wants them to do. I mean, I am lucky enough to know a ton of people inside Google and they're all great people, you know, none of them are like, ha ha ha, you know, like you will be assimilated. You know, they're all trying to turn this ship around from the inside, which is extraordinary hard work. And, and that's, you know, that's the work that we're, we're being called to do right now, I think is to, is to say, look, we, the, you know, the economies of scale that have favored efficiency and convenience over the last 300 years have hollowed out all of the messy, creative possibility that makes being a human, not only rich and wonderful and rewarding, but also robust and anti-fragile to the kinds of changes that we're facing as a society. We absolutely need to restore this mesocosmic layer, you know, the layer of like 
neighborhoods and, you know, worship groups and like book clubs and all of the things that the coronavirus has attacked, you know, it's like, it's forcing us to, to, to sever from the vestigial human communities that we've been keeping to realize that they have been withered to a vestige and that it's time to start nourishing that stuff actively again, because we need to, we need to recenter things a little bit. You know, the, the, the centrifuge of history has gotten us focused on global and like microscopic and it like, we need to bring back this human scale. So that's really, um, I don't know if that's a direct answer to your question. I think I answered like no, five no, other questions. That point about how the coronavirus has taken away from us something that's you know so vital, um, not only to our well-being, but also um, vital to our, like it, those things coming together in groups and conversing and, you know, sharing experiences and well, just coming together is, is necessary for us to tackle the array of challenges, which we currently face. Like if we wish to, if we wish to, you know, change course and, you know, take our foot off the accelerator and do all these sorts of things to really bring about these titanic shifts, which are necessary, we actually need to come together in, in, in person. We need to have these, these communal groups. Um, I'm not just talking about mass protests, like, the change happens a lot lower. Like the protests are the, the manifestation of lots of underlying uh, interactions, which we have been stripped of. And the only ways in which right now, many of us can actually interact are through these digital mediums, which is so, which are so low bandwidth, like compared to the, 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 what you get from when you actually speak to someone in person and you, you feel that connection, that ineffable connection. Like you can't quite get, I think through, through this, but when you're in a group of people and you're all kind of talking about something that's important, there's this thing in the air, um, which has been taken from us. And that's what we need to tap into in order for us to kind of, to shift, to shift the boat, um, to, to, you know, to, to chart a new course. And it's the thing, it's the thing I've been struggling with because I know that we need to kind of move towards this, um, where we need to bring community back. Like we, we need, like you said, we need this, this, these local interactions. We need the, we need the church services on a Sunday, but maybe with a bit of science thrown in, you know, we don't, we don't need like the gospel. We need, uh, I don't know, insert Carl Sagan here or something, you know, we, we need some cosmically scientifically aligned, um, I would say religion and communal practice to kind of shift us in, in that direction. And the, one of the great things about the coronavirus is it's making us realize that, holy shit, we need to adapt. But the nature of the virus in well, what it's done to our systems and pulling us apart is making that all the more difficult. So it's like a wake up call. But if we don't get our, if we don't get our hands on it, if we, if we don't, you know, um, right this ship, then we are in a bit of trouble. Oh yeah. We're in, we're in trouble. There's no question. One way or the we, other. We were in trouble 20 years ago or 10 years ago, but right. now we're, we're in extra. Right. Extra. I mean, I, I do kind of hope, I think the, the, the beacon of hope that I see in this situation is kind of a, I don't know, gallows humor, kind of dark, bright thing. You know, you gotta, I, I really value being able to hold the paradox here, which is that I think that in a way there's hope in the fact that it's getting so bad that it's becoming more and more obvious to the people that are not 
that have been failed by our systems of education and have never really like learned to take a systems level view of things, you know, and are only capable of appreciating the fact that like, oh, I guess coronavirus is real because my dad got it, you know, or, oh, I guess climate change is real because my city is on fire. My you know? the sky is uh, red. <laughs> like, right, right. It's like, I mean, and even now, even now it's like, I'm watching people on Twitter go, you know, oh, uh, leftist arsons started the fires on the West coast to get us to believe in climate change. And it's like, oh, really? Like a bunch of, you know, woodland conservationists decided to burn down their temple in order to get you to fund what at that point, like, what would you be saving? And even if that was the case, I saw this tweet from, I think it was Joe Norman. And it's like, sometimes you know, a good heuristic is to focus on the fuel, not the spark, right? doesn't matter. If, even if that was the case, the fact that the fuel that could, um, well, fuel this, this conflagration that's, you know, enveloping, you know, half a continent is, um, is worth paying attention to. Yeah. And so, I mean, to your point, I was really lucky yesterday. Uh, I spoke with caveat magister who is the sort of resident philosopher of burning man and i was talking with him and um two of two other friends of mine naomi most and mitch mignano both both of whom are uh i mean all three of them have you know done a lot more work on either the scholarship of burning man and like mitch was a student in the grad school of of william Irwin thompson's and looked at the way that um festivals like burning man are you know participating in the emergence of this new planetary culture. And Naomi is a, an organizer at the noise bridge hackerspace in, in San Francisco and kind of like an anarchist community leader. And so like the three of them uh, and I were talking yesterday about how, you know, how we feel the transition into virtual reality went for Burning Man this year. And also, you know, how that is sort of juxtaposed against the number of, you know, tiny local events uh, where, you know, people still burned an effigy in their homes or, you know, like had some friends over for a little social distancing in-person, you know, gathering. And, you know, what it is that we are still learning about the the digital space like how to embody ourselves in that space and i mean but i guess the you know the thing that i i want to you know point to in that conversation was all of us agreed that the age of this sort of globalist rhetoric that the internet is going to bring everybody together is like behind us and you know that there are you know there are now multiple webs you know very few, you know, none of them are really worldwide. Russia has its own internet. China has its own internet. The rest of the world kind of doesn't want to be a part of those internets, um, you know, and they don't want to be a part of ours. And, you know, and it's like, so there's a sense in which, um, you know, systems in crisis, like uh, the, you know, the Chacoan people of New Mexico, um, you know, the antiquity or, um, you know, the Balkans, uh, you know, the, the fact that we have a word for this balkanization, you know, that, that a system in crisis tends to break apart so that it can sense make in a, a timescale that actually meets the demands of the eruptive novelty that it's suffering through, you know, so like, 
we can actually, I, I was talking about this with the president of the Santa Fe Institute on episode 29 of Complexity Podcast, where he was referencing the work of Miguel Fuentes, who has done work on um, network structure through social revolutions and found that you actually see, you can actually kind of call a, a revolution uh, by looking at the way that communication structures start to break up in anticipation of that revolution. And so we are actually witnessing this right now. Like it's, it's very clear that the next decade is going to be a year of massive and epochal political change, not just in the United States, but all over the world. And the evidence of this is not just what we would call like polarization per se, but this move back to smaller communities of sense making, you know, a, a, a fragmentation of the social graph, but in practice, what that looks like and what, you know, caveat magister was saying about it was that this means that, you know, for better or worse, this is the first year that we did not have thousands of people gathered around one man in the center of black, you know, black rock city in Nevada. What we had was you know, lots like thousands of gatherings of like one to a dozen people all over the world. And like probably more people were engaged in this ritual on this evening than ever have been before. But it had just like the, the, the pine cone had burned and like erupted and thrown its seeds everywhere. You know, like that's the, the seed had burst and like shot all of its stuff to the wind, you know? And so there's this sense that like, this is the time, this is the time of, of a, uh, a kind of um, diaspora uh, that is going to lead to like all of these individual campfires where people are locally making sense of things. And, you know, for example, um, you know, I witnessed the exodus from, you know, Facebook to like discord servers. You know, this is a big thing uh, for future fossils was, you know, me reallocating my attention from the future fossils, Facebook group, which is still, you know, fine. It's, it's humming along, but you know, to this invite only discord server where people could establish much more intimate and, and profound interpersonal relationships without just sort of pissing into the wind, you know, like this is, this is why last point I would make about this. This is why I think the evidence points to a hot springs origin of life model rather than an oceanic origins of life model. Because if you're looking at like the entire ocean, it's, it's like impossible to imagine how, you know, molecules can like aggregate and form layers and like, you know, actually huddle up in such a powerful solvent. That's just like the currents and everything. Whereas like a little hot spring that, you know, dries out and, and uh, gets, you know, periodically refilled with water and then, you know, kind of bakes layers of stuff into the sun. You know, this is, this is like the incubator for life. You know, you don't incubate a, a fetus on like the roof of a house during a windstorm, you know, like you, you put them inside a womb. And so like, we're, I think whatever is being born through us now has to be born through the wombs of all of these, you know, like a massive parallel experiment that we're running, you know, the, how many different, you know, to use the Chinese expression, let a hundred flowers bloom, you know, evolution is if nothing else, entropic and endlessly creative in its, its relentless, uh, search of the space of all possibilities. And so like amidst this crisis, this is the solution, which is, you know, huddle up, you know, find your people and then like find your own way and then compare it 
to the ways that everyone else are doing it and like, you know, relentlessly steal the good ideas from each other. Yeah. And that's how we're going to get through. I love in your, in your, I guess, essay, but part of the book, the future is, is a place you say that, 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 um, process of, uh, evolution of, uh, testing out lots of different possibilities, you know, uh, basically experimentation is technically conservative because it conserves life. It's, 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 it's allowing us to or life to exist across time. At least that's what I picked up from it. That's what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, it's important to kind of differentiate the way that people have run with the term conservative, uh, you know, to mean sort of history blind at this point, you know, when people talk about traditional marriage and they're looking at like the, you know, 150 years ago in one society, and it's like, that's, you know, like if you're going to come on, like if you're really going to talk about traditional marriages, you got to talk about, you know, honor killings and, and like, you know, the stuff like the stuff that was in the Bible. And like, do we really want to keep that? Um, but on the other hand, like there is this sense of like the conservation of momentum, you know, the way that uh, structure is conserved. And I think that that's really what I was you know, getting at, which is, is that it's endless, you know, that really when we're talking about something as broad and, and transcendent as the evolutionary process, then certain dualisms really just fail us. You know, like it, like with the work of Lynn Margulis, you know, when she's talking about symbiosis as a driving factor in major evolutionary transitions in which uh, the the new level of individuality is some sort of meta organism made through a collaboration, an intimate collaboration of the previous level of individuality. It's various, you know, like what we're going through really right now as a species is, you know, like brains linked by computers and this kind of thing. Um, and where, you know, what made us a species in the first place, you know, the, 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 the way that each of us is sort of nothing without other people, you know? I mean, that's, that's very um, bizarre in one sense, but also very characteristic of a winning strategy, evolutionarily speaking, that, you know, teams win uh, over the, the loner, you know, and, and, you know, for many reasons. And so like when you're weighing that kind of uh, transcendent multi-perspectival object, then it doesn't make sense to talk about evolution as characterized only by collaboration or only by competition. And this is like another area where we just get hung up trying to oversimplify the story. And so again, like it, it doesn't make sense to talk about evolution as merely creative or merely conservative because the, all of the creativity is based on the appropriation and repurposing of existing traits, perhaps in a new environment, you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's an enormous 4 billion year remix project. That's just constantly building on its, you know, remixing its prior remixes. And, you know, so that's, yeah, I mean, that's the point is that if we really want to talk about this with sort of sufficient depth and dimensionality, that, that dimensionality is more than two, you know, it's, it's more than uh, subject and object. And, you know, one of my favorite authors, Richard Doyle, 
at Penn State University who wrote Darwin's Pharmacy, Sex Plants, and the Evolution of the Noosphere, starts that book by saying that he thinks that psychedelic psychedelics are what he calls ecodelics um, because he's very sensitive to the the way that we talk about these things and the the, the sort of the way that those the the words that we use shape the algorithm of the experiences that these substances engender um, he says that he believes that ecodelics are kind of uh, training wheels for transhumanism because by drawing us out of subject object duality and into this sort of high, this n dimensional hyperspace of transformed subjectivity that they are preparing us to perceive and to navigate the world with the level of nuance and sophistication that will be required of us in this century. And so I, I love that. And I think that that's very accurate. Um, so yeah, so what is, what is conserved when you, you know, you go through a, a radical shift, um, something, Something Mm -hmm. is conserved if you want to talk about it in that way. Um, But maybe that's not where the focus necessarily should be anymore. You know? Yeah. I I want to um, just dive back to, uh, yeah, I want to throw back to one of the things that you said um, about uh, how, you know, the pine cone has, has exploded or there are these campfires uh, everywhere, illuminating uh, local contexts. And I think I love that metaphor because the, the campfire, like we, we all, in order for us to really tackle the, the array of challenges we face, global challenges, we need to focus on our own local environments. And, you know, the, the push, the move back to the local uh, is one that we really need to, um, well, accelerate or that, that's the direction in which we need to go. However, what I'm, what is also, you know, abundantly clear is that we need to align the local actions with the global needs, right? So I'm really curious, um, given your exposure to um, and your understanding of, you know, complexity science and um, the the difficulty in actually um, bringing about changes that you want um, when, when engaging with uh, systems that are so incredibly complex, um, how do you think that we might be able to instill this sort of alignment between local needs and global needs? Um, that's like the challenge. That's a, yeah. I mean, that really is because, you know, I think one of the things that I've really appreciated about the conversation at the Santa Fe Institute, uh, where, you know, I should make it clear, I'm not a researcher, you know, I'm on the staff, I'm, I'm on the communications team, but I get you to hang out with all of us though, by, by saying that I'll just say like, you're, you're an incredible communicator and you get it. I mean, I don't know. Thanks. I don't get it, but I think you get it and you help me get it. So I well, but I hope so. <laughs> um, but you know, one of the things that I'm, I'm starting to get is that the way that we have thought about complexity or, you know, over the last 20 years, 30 years, as that term has come into its own in the sciences is kind of wrong that, um, it's not about simple things coming together to make more and more complex things, you know, that actually, you know, Jessica Flack at SFI talks about this a lot. Uh, she talks about it in her community lecture, which is up on YouTube. Um, which is if you look at the, the complexity of one living cell, it's mind boggling, you know, and that really, you know, she's a, an information scientist, you know, she looks at, the ways that, uh, you know, all of those cognitive biases I was talking about are ways for us to, you know, quote unquote, coarse grain the world at the human level. So like we, we see 
the human realm as somehow less complex than an ecology or than, you know, the, the ecology of stuff in your bloodstream, uh, just because that's how our nervous systems are tuned, you know, that we're, we're uh, chunking information in a particular way and processing it that in a particular way. And, you know, so I, I say that all as a disclaimer that we still, you know, as much as much as the the entire field of complex systems research has just totally flowered and matured over the course of our lifetimes. Uh, there's this still this fundamental question, which is uh, how do you compare the complexity of what's going on in the microcosm to the complexity of what's going on in the, the, macrocosm because the macrocosm doesn't actually see all of the detail and complexity of its constituent parts. Like that's sort of the point, you know, that's why these systems have to break apart when really rapid change is going down because like you don't actually have a God's eye view of everything going on inside your body and you can't metabolically, you know, it's impossible. And so, you know, for the, you know, like, I, I guess, you know, that's one way of sort of leading up to this question of why it is that we have to rebel in some sense. I don't know. I don't particularly like the word rebel, but it, like why it is that we have to assert our agency um, against the agency of the dehumanizing institutions in which we find ourselves embedded, because these, in you know, your government on some important level or the your your corporations that you do you depend on and for your modern life are not aware of you in the way that you're not aware of the you know the the cells inside the tip of your finger unless you burn them and then even then like you probably didn't you know you're just going to get more and so like there's we're, human beings are fungible to these systems you know we're completely expendable and replaceable in in an in in an important way you know, I mean, there's arguments, but like for, you know, the certain like special people, whatever. Uh, but, you know, I think it's the case that like when it comes to this question of like, at what scale should I be putting my attention? It's not, I mean, it's super still important to follow that other, that bumper sticker that came out of the 1970s, right? You know, think globally, act locally, because really in some sense, that's all we can do. We're profoundly disempowered by the systems uh, that, you know, like the matrix, basically, you know, like we're, we're in a, a situation where, you know, because of political lobbying, really only corporations get to decide who wins an election in a really horrifying way that Lawrence Lessig has, has spoken about extraordinary detail. Like the number one thing we can do in politics right now is get money out of politics because it's, it's allowing these institutions with their own agency. That is nobody's choice to drive the future of the entire system. And that needs to be again, restored, you know, like the, that's the only way to restore democracy is to restore the individual's ability to actually influence the system you know, to actually for your vote to actually count for something. Um, and so to do work, you know, there are people who are doing work on that level that, um, you know, on some, in some sort of mathematical sense, you might consider a local level in that it's one, you know, very narrow and specified project, get money out of politics. And yet it's a project happening at the scale of the, the entire nation, right? 
And so like, I don't know, like, I think that for most people, most people do not have the means, do not have the affordances, do not have the network. The social network is, you know, primary here in terms of, you know, your ability to influence things based on who you know. And most people do not know enough people of influence to be able to work magic at that level, if you will. But most people know enough people in their neighborhood to make a difference at the scale of their neighborhood, you know, and, and most people know enough about their backyard to be able to grow a beautiful garden in their backyard. And like, you have that, you know, or you can grow one on your roof if you live in the city, you know, maybe, or like, you know, it's, 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 I think it's not so much about the, uh, the, spatiotemporal scale so much as it is about the degree of uh, separation that you are from various objects and processes in your networks, you know? So like, it's not about, um, you know, if you know everyone in Washington, then the United States is like a country club you know, and, and it's like, it's actually a very small party in that respect, you know, and like you can work things in that way that like most people, you know, they're going to be going to like, you know, parent teachers association meetings or something to, to have the same kind of impact. And so it's, it's really just, I think that when it comes to like, when you, when I talk about thinking locally, um, there's a book by R.J. Stewart called The Way of Merlin. Uh, it's a book about about practical magic. And I love this book. I mean, I may, again, like I may come out sounding pretty woo in recommending, uh, you know, like this kind of read. But like one of the things I loved about it was he talks about how all magic starts by finding a place of power, finding a sacred tree or a sacred stream, you know, identifying, anchoring yourself in the landscape, anchoring yourself in where you are now, you know, honoring the, the four directions and the above and the below and the within, you know, so the seven directions and centering your action, centering your agency in your own person, and that that's how you start to reclaim your power from this world, which is profoundly, uh, in, you know, orchestrated to decenter us, you know, to get all of our attention on Netflix uh, or on, you know, CNN. And, you know, it's, it's like, I know so many people that are just in despair because they can't get their head out of the news. And it's like, I'm not saying don't watch the news. I'm saying, you need to fix you, meaning all of us, I need to fix the, the balance between the attention that we're giving a world over which we have no control and the, our attention to a world over which we have some control. And, you know, the only way that you know really what you can reach, you know, what affordances are available to you is through a process of inquiry. I don't know if you can see this shirt. I got this shirt at the grocery store here in Santa Fe. That's the Zia, sort of the, the icon of Santa Fe, inquire within, you know? And so like, that's, 
you know, I love this shirt and I love that, that so it's a, just for those listening, it's a, um, it's a, what, what's the Zia? Cause it, the Zia, the Zia is a native American symbol for, of like the four directions. And it's a, it's a, it's like it's, North, it's North, a, East, West, but there's like four fingers. Extend, right. it's, it's like the yin yang symbol with four fingers extending from each of the, uh, the poles or like the North, South, East, West. Areas. Yeah. Yeah. So it's yeah. a, it's the sacred wheel that's containing the play of opposites and, and so on. And so, um, and then, you know, radiating out. And I think that that's really, you know, that's the, that's what I wish to embody and what I wish to communicate, you know, in an answer to that question, which is that you are no, of no use to this world. You are not helping anyone. You're not going to help anyone if you don't first put on your own oxygen mask, right? Like if you don't first get clear about who you, you know, who you are and what you're connected to and what you know and what you don't know. And that's where you can, that's where you start, you know, like there's no point in talking about the future of earth with all of our attention on Mars. Like it, you can't, you know, and, and in the same way, you know, we, this, this country has spent so much time, attention and resources trying to dominate the world, trying to manage the world that we have eviscerated everything that made the United States great. You know, we have, we've allowed the infrastructure of the United States to crumble into in many places that of a, you know, a, a third world country in order to support the military industrial expansion of, a, you know, a new American century. And that's exactly the wrong approach. You know, like if you look at the difference with, you know, like Canada, Canada's like, you know, they, they have their, their domestic foreign policy balance more or less figured out as far as I can tell, you know, and that's why it's such a, an alluring place for most of us in the United States, like looking at it, slobbering over it, you know, like, how do we get in there? They're like, uh, uh-uh, you're not getting in because we, we, you know, we, that if you did, we couldn't take care of our own, you know? And, and so anyway, I mean, that's, I mean, I, yeah. I, I, I gotta be careful uh, with my sort of uh, political musings, but, I think it just, that, just makes me think yeah. that the the power like that that over the the uh, emphasis placed on military power at the expense of everything else is actually done more against it's worked against the United States. I think the true power of the United States is not in its weapons, but it's in its people and the culture that it exports, like the music, the, the television shows, the doc, like the documentaries, um, everything, all the culture that it exports, I think has had a far greater, um, has, has had a far greater influence in shaping the rest of the world than, um, I don't know, big guns. Um, and I say well, this again, like, you know, if you, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, I say this is I've lived in Asia for most of my life and I watched a lot of American television and I know that people in Europe, everyone who learns English kind of learns it through American television and listens to, you know, mainly American music. Things become more globalized, I guess. But over the past 50 years, I'd say a lot of the, the cultural exports of the United States is what has really helped cement it as like the global power. The, the hedging. Well, I, yeah. And I would say like, you know, beyond sort of the question of like whether you know, cultural dominance is really, you know, soft power, like the CIA promoting modern art back in the sixties and seventies, um, is really like, I think it more, what I'm getting at is, is, uh, while all of that is true, you know, I want to draw the contrast to like the, the approach of military dominance 
uh, or soft power dominance is an emphasis on uh, sort of top down control. a whole, a hollow sense of yeah, control-based power, which is uh, contraindicated in a world of complex dynamical systems, right? Like the whole point is, you don't know, you cannot know the whole system because you you don't have the resources, computational or metabolic, to create a one-to-one map of reality. This is why there's a butterfly effect, right? Because there's always some pixel that you, you know, it's like you have coarse grained the, the world meteorological systems and missed something going on below the threshold of your ability to measure, you know? And so like all of this stuff erupts out of the, the micro or the macro, you know, erupts from beyond your, um, your, you know, your, liminal thresholds. And so like, this is why, again, like I wrote a piece called the future is indistinguishable from magic for that book. And in that book, you know, talking about, uh, historically, you know, masculine magical traditions emphasize control and power. And that's why you get stories like Faust or the sorcerer's apprentice, you know, where it blows up in your face where it's like, you forgot, you missed some key detail in your magical working. And now you have to suffer the con the tragic consequences of your own ignorance, you know, whereas feminine magical traditions historically on average are about the alignment of the inner world with the, the cycles of the outer world. You know, this is again, like if you look at like a Taoist way of knowing this is about, you know, it's like, I don't think it's quite accurate to call it going with the flow. I mean, that's, it's got kind of like hippie connotations that I'm, that I don't think are like rigorous enough for what I'm describing here, but I'm talking about like what you said, what you called for uh, a couple minutes ago was, um, what I understand as cosmic humanism, you know, what, what William Irwin Thompson talked about is a, a revival of a true cosmopolitanism, meaning living in the city, but anchored in the cosmos, you know, the way that ancient civilizations were all obsessed with their architecture being a reflection of their cosmology, you know? And like, if you look at the modern world, um, it's still a reflection of our cosmology, only it's being, it's unwitting, it's unintentional. You know, the fact is that the tallest building in the city used to be the church and now it's the bank. And like, we don't think of ourselves as religious, but we're worshiping mammon, you know, we're, we're, we're worshiping this like self-consuming, uh, you know, uh, anti-human, anti-life process that is intentionally blind to itself and intentionally blinds its, its constituents. And it's like, that's, that's not what we need right now. Um, what we need is to wake up to the actual momenta and forces of history and where they are taking us and, you know, accept them in some important way and ally ourselves to the bigger picture rather than persist in this foolish attempt to conquer nature, you know, to dominate the natural world. And I mean, this is like, I have a Jurassic park tattoo, you know, like this is my Ian Malcolm rant here, you know, that, that like, if you are 
doomed to fail. This is not about like, don't play God in like the simple way. That's like a vast oversimplification. It's that, you know, you need to have some humility about the mystery of the world that we actually live in. And that's the only place that you can actually start to, you know, to draw from, again, in that RJ Stewart sense, the, the power of Merlin does not come from Merlin. It comes from the land. And he is an epiphenomenon of the agency of his own landscape, as all of us are. That was like the whole point of that, you know, that piece on expertise is that like, you know, we are sort of nothing out of context. As, as William Irwin Thompson says, you know, uh, a fact requires a, a, a worldview the way that a flame requires an atmosphere. So like all identity and all purpose is, is bound in this way. And if you, uh, if you think that the goal is to exert your will upon the world, then the joke is on you because you are a pawn for forces that you don't even, you're not even aware of. You are a puppet for things that you are willfully not paying attention to. And that's where we are right now as a country and as, as a sort of, you know, Western civilization, broadly speaking, you know, who in their right mind thought it was a good idea to trawl the great barrier reef. Like, are you out of your goddamn mind? You know, um, Good luck, you know, good luck undermining everything upon which you depend, you know, like we need to reverse this as quickly as possible. Yeah. And rant. Definitely. I think the, the, the talk of um, our cognitive biases and how they shape our lives at the beginning kind of uh, fits in with this conversation that we are um, pawns. Uh, you know, moved by forces, which we do not understand. And our biases kind of make this, you know, apparent in, in some way, uh, like the fact that life goes back 4 billion years and we are just, you know, one extension of this, of this, uh, of this branch. Um, it, it makes me think like I've, I've been, I've, I've got, I'm studying philosophy at the moment and like, I'm just completely obsessed with this notion of information and how information like is everything. It is like, what is the most important? It is like foundational to our, to our, um, ethic. It is foundational to what is good, um, or what we deem to be good. Like, I think there is some universal notion of, uh, like, I think information and ordered complexity and everything moving in this, you know, direction that we're, that we're observing. I think, um, uh, that's where the answer of, of, of what is good lies. And I don't know what that means for us. Like if, if that's the case, I, I still don't know what that actually means for how we should act, except that con- we should be conserving. We, we should be conserving life. We should be tending to this garden, but rather than trying to shape it, we should just kind of bear witness to what it produces and celebrate in that fact. And that's it. That's Definitely. it. That, that, Cause I don't see what else we can do. Cause we're just so fallible and, and, and um, I'm not going to say closed, but just so limited. Yeah. Well, you know, there's, there's two things that that brings up for me. One is the talk that that kind of the kind of most mind blowing thing that ever happened to me. My, my buddy, Andrew Despy saw me speaking at rainbow serpent festival in, uh, in Australia. And, uh, he at the time worked for the Commonwealth bank of Australia and was able to invite me in to speak in their innovation lab. I did in Sydney. Yeah. (laughs) Like downtown. And I gave, I gave what was scheduled to be like, I think like a 40, I just want to bring some context to some people here listening, like Commonwealth bank, there are people like it's, it's one of the big four banks of Australia and there are a lot of people trying to petition 
petition people to get their money out of the Commonwealth Bank because they are, you know, funding fossil fuels and, you know, like their money is not aligned with our long-term interests. So I just think that that's just, it's so brilliant to get the idea of you being implanted in there to, you know, to, to talk about these things just is, is hilarious. It was, it was funny because I think I was scheduled for half an hour and it was a Friday afternoon and I ended up keeping like half the audience there for two hours after 5 p.m. And then we went across the street and like had a couple pictures and like I, some of those people I was still hanging out with at midnight. It was, it was a, a, a nod to Andrew Despy, uh, who no longer works at the Commonwealth Bank, but um, nonetheless, I think demonstrated what I would consider a powerful act of, of uh, social wizard, social wizardry by even getting me in there and the talk, uh, which you can find the first part of the talk online on my YouTube channel was called um, tech ethics as psychedelic parenting. And I was basically saying what you just said, which is that our technologies are not just going to do what we expect them to do. You know, that there are always unintended consequences and that it makes sense for us to think about these profound world shaping technologies that are being born through us right now as children and to treat them with an understanding of what it is to raise a child. I mean, I was not yet a father at the time that I gave this talk, but I've been thinking in this way for years. Um, I gave a a sort of a more uh, fleshed out and robust version of this talk at Burning Man, which you can find on uh, Future Fossils. But this idea that like, you know, a child, yeah, you can teach a child, you can raise a child well, but you cannot determine what that child will become. and, you know, this is a big piece of, if you look at Lewis Hyde's book, Common as Error, uh, it's a fantastic piece uh, on the history of intellectual property law and how the the patent was originally invented as sort of like that warm, shallow pond. It wasn't a way to control an idea. It was a way to nurture and incubate an idea before releasing it into the wild and into the commons, which like most people have forgotten about, like this idea that like the things that we create are actually for other people and not just for our own personal gain. Um, so like, that's, that's one thing, you know, I, I agree with you that like, um, you know, that the right way to think about this is more like, you know, especially as technologies that we have created, um, you know, Danny Hillis has a great piece on this called The Age of Enlightenment is Over, like we, the Welcome to the Age of Entanglement. It's up on the MIT website. And, you know, Danny Hillis, who's a, a, a major figure, co-founder of the Long Now Foundation, was writing about how like new technologies, we're not even really inventing them. We're just sort of like growing them out of evolutionary algorithms, you know, that like they're being as much designed by computers as they are by human beings. And so we're just sort of like specifying, oh, I want a bike that can hold up under these like these sort of pressures and constraints. And then what comes out looks more like a living creature than anything a human would have designed. You know, this is true of like the computer architectures themselves now. Um, And so more and more of this is about, you know, emergent engineering, which is uh, a a big area of study at SFI also. And, and so again, like to your point, this is a, we're talking about a garden here, you know, we're talking about like sky, right? Yeah. We're talking about like moving it in sort of, you know, um, I guess the, the last thing to say about this, because I think this is really key as far as like anchoring this at the human level 
is that there's another fantastic book I read um, called More Than Two, which is a handbook for uh, polyamorous relationships. And they they talk about this garden metaphor in in terms of, you know, the, the human love life. They're basically like, you don't control who you're going to meet. You have no control over who you're going to fall in love with. You only kind of have control over what plants you decide to rip up after the seeds blow into your garden. And like, maybe the right thing to do is to like, wait and see what's growing before you rip it up or before you, you know, like that there's that, you know, if every relation, some of these relationships are going to feed on one another and some of them are going to nourish each other and you don't really know until you just sort of allow those things to take their course and and you know to treat it not as a sort of italian garden you know historically like these great gardens of the you know of, of the enlightenment where everything is so perfectly manicured but like wild crafting like the indigenous peoples of australia did for like forty thousand years or whatever and the indigenous peoples of the americas did so that when when the colonists came to these these places it looked wild to them it looked like nobody was doing anything when in fact it was People were taking very, very careful care. Taking, you know, we're, we're we're encouraging biodiversity and and uh, what we would call anti fragility. You know, Nassim Taleb's idea of like something that actually can take a hit and get stronger for yeah. it. You know, and that's where we need to. That's where we need to be right now. Is is wild crafting our technologies, our regulation, our personal relationships. You know, and, and that, that means a good deal of surrender for which our education in the modern world has not prepared us. Is that what you mean by rewilding the future? Is it? Cause that, that's a yes. term that, yeah. Okay. Cause I was going to ask you about that. Cause I wasn't quite sure. I, I had like an intuitive understanding of what that might mean, but, um, is that, that's what you were getting at. Yeah. That, that, yeah. Rewilding is like a whole, uh, you know, cultural movement about, um, you know, just, sort of releasing spaces and uh, you know, like, like an, like I guess, you know, one really cool example that I learned about from Kat Harrison an ethnobotanist uh, back in 2010 uh, was this idea of daylighting and daylighting is when in the course of a city, the construction of a city, the the natural waterways that flow through that city have been paved over and forced underground. Like, you know, all of these uh, creeks upon which New York has was built still exist. They're just in the sewers, you know, and what that does is it kills the delicate ecosystems that were supporting that, that whole area. And so there's been a movement in architecture over the last couple decades to restore those waterways to a, you know, a, a natural balance, like restoring them to the atmosphere and to sunlight and allowing the, you know, rather than just like putrid chemicals collecting in them underground, uh, allowing the sort of uh, natural photosynthesis and bacterial and, you know, microbial and, and, you know, microfaunal balance to reassert itself. And like something like that has to be going on uh, for the human imagination right now also that, you know, we have paved over what it means to be human 
over the last few hundred years. And it's time to, you know, I think it, it, this is again, one of these things that we may not actually have to force. I think it's a mistake of a lot of people in the so-called visionary or, or culture that, you know, we're going to like, if you look back in the sixties and the way that like psychedelics were sort of, you know, zealously, um, forced, upon so many people like actually like literally like CIA putting LSD in the drinking water, Tim Leary saying everyone should take acid. Um, you know, we don't need to, uh, push the river quote unquote. And a lot of us are sweeping the tide as it were. Uh, and I think that really what this is, is not about so much forcing historical change. We're living through more than our share of it. It's about learning how to integrate those changes. And so it's like, I don't think that we actually need to, you know, break the concrete of, you know, the modern psyche so much as we need to know where to put it when the forces of history that we're living through now break it for us, you know, that like those days are over. Mm -hmm. And it's just a matter of making sure that we passed through this age of metamorphosis uh, as carefully as possible. And, you know, with, with well, the, we survive sort of, first and foremost, and then we right, and then minimal damage. Yeah. Yeah. Like let's, yeah. you know, how many buildings need to come down for this revolution to succeed? Hopefully not that many, right? Hopefully the systems, you know, it's it's just this question of like how much destruction has to happen for this rebirth to occur and like we don't i don't think we need to force it like there's plenty of people out there that are doing the work for us yeah. and plenty of you know transcendent natural processes uh over which we have no control that are that are dragging us kicking and screaming into the next age um but hopefully we we stop kicking and screaming and and can like learn with, to with enjoy it, the view than, yeah 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 <laughs> And maybe harness some of that, some of the direction, you know, if we're being pushed in one direction, maybe rather than fight against it, we can kind of work with it and influence a little bit, you know, like um, yeah. navigate briefly just as much as we can on these turbulent oceans. Or at least harness the friction of us being dragged into like, you know, spinning a turbine or something, yeah. you know, like close, close all material and energetic loops wherever possible. <laughs> That's the circular thinking of of the the new integrated west i think yeah. you know is like a return to that like again a, a return to that kind of um cyclical uh, you know medicine wheel kind of idea of of there's no such thing as waste you know uh, bill thompson talked about this you know that the emergence of the chaotic dynamical world age came after world war ii when we realized that you can't just nuclear bomb your enemy into submission without drinking that fallout the next, you know, the next year that there is no other in a really like fundamental way that, you know, it's like everything we do is downstream. Uh, you know, like it's, it, we are downstream of all of our own actions eventually. And like when I That's spoke karma, to you, right? like the, this is yeah, like what, the, the science of karma in a way. It is like uh, when I spoke to Mark Nelson for future fossils podcast, Mark lives here in Santa Fe. He's a really interesting guy. He wrote a book called the wastewater gardener based on work that he did inside biosphere two, which was this completely 
balls out visionary experiment to reproduce five major earth ecosystems inside a single building in Arizona back in the 1990s. There's a new documentary about it called Spaceship Earth. I cannot recommend highly enough to everyone to realize the kind of like innovative visionary cultural efforts that we're standing upon in this conversation. And Mark said, you know, that the atmosphere of this building was so small that it made certain things that were hard to see at the global scale incredibly obvious at the scale of like trying to simulate a planet inside a building. And like, for example, um, the atmospheric regulation of this place was such that you could see the gas levels. You could see like the pollution meter start to go up. Um, after just a few hours, if you accidentally cross threaded the cap of a bottle of glue, like it would get picked up by the sensitive readers that they were using to monitor the internal atmosphere of this place. And like Rusty Schweikart, uh, who was a member of the Lindisfarne Association and, and a, a, an, an astronaut, U.S. astronaut, talked about this also, you know, talked about the way that space stations, clo these closed, you know, autonomous systems reveal to us the damage that we're actually doing in a way that's not obvious, you know, that the greenhouse gas, the greenhouse effect was like plain as day in biosphere two. They were suffering immensely um, because they were producing too much carbon dioxide and it was, it nearly suffocated all eight people living in the building. It's like a really interesting part of, of the, the, the sort of peril of that, of that adventure narrative. But like, that was 1993 and like a ton of people still don't get it because how you know, this atmosphere is enormous and it's like, you're not necessarily going to suffocate in your own house. Like you're not going to choke on your own exhaust uh, yet, you know, but like if you live in, I don't know, Beijing, it's considerably more obvious. Yeah. So at any rate, yeah, it's just a, yeah. Like you said, it's like a science of karma. It's, it's, it's understanding uh, that, you know, at some time scale, you know, even if you don't live to see it, your kids will, you know, or their kids will. And so we need to think about all of these things in a profoundly different way from the way that we have been thinking about them. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, our time is running short and perhaps this might not be the best time to have this conversation, but I think given recent <laughs> events and the things that have become, you could say more public, um, you know, with, with the Washington Post and all that, what I'm talking about is, of course, is um, UFOs and, you know, these and ex extraterrestrials and all that. Because um, I'd love Why to, not? I'd love to dive in there uh, with you because I, 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 just in my most recent podcasts, I, I've had like a little experience, but it was just like floating orbs in the sky um, that were moving in formation and they rearranged um, while moving at uniform speed and they kind of disappeared. That, that's the extent of my... Um, Where and when did you see that? Uh, 20, end of 2011, it was the day after the Geminid meteor shower. And the reason why I remember this is because I was on the roof and I saw like 11 shooting stars and I'm like, I'm bundling these guys up into one and I'm making a wish. Cause that's what, you know, like there's no rules for these things. Um, and <laughs> I wished to contact or come to contact with aliens. Like that was my, my, my one wish. And the next night I saw this formation of, of floating orbs traveling across the night sky and I was completely sober. Um, so, and I've just heard you mention these, these things in, um, yeah, your, your podcasts or in some of your episodes and like the, the, this is like public knowledge now. Like we've, we have these, like these things that are flying, 
uh, that we don't really know what the fuck they are, how to explain them. And the Navy pilot's like, shit, man, like, I've never seen anything like that. And then, you know, everyone's like, we told you, sir, you know, we've been saying this for, for a century. So, um, talk to me. What's, uh, what if you, I, I, I will, I think, pass the ball on this one to my friend, Stuart Davis, who is, uh, One of the major inspirations to me as a songwriter over the years and a sort of, you know, transdisciplinary creative fireball, you know, comedian, uh, filmmaker, painter, somebody that I feel very much sort of as an elder brother along my own path up the mountain. Um, And Stuart just started a podcast called Aliens and Artists, where he's interviewing uh, all these artists from around the world about their UFO or extraterrestrial contact experiences. And I was just interviewed for this show. My interview should be out in a couple of weeks. Oh, perfect. Uh, depending on when you release this as, and as well as the new single that I was just telling you about at the beginning of the call, which was inspired by um, a couple of my songs were inspired by these, these UFO sightings that I've had over the years. And so I'll be, I'll be debuting that on his show, but like you listen to this, it, to me, it seems very clear that they like each one of these cases taken individually presents a kind of, um, axiom in a larger proof, you know, that like alone, my experiences aren't going to necessarily prove anyone you have to like constellate everything that everyone is reporting to realize that we have like clearly crossed the Rubicon of statistical deniability and that, you know, certain things like this woman, uh, Kate Torvald that Stuart had on his show recently has 35 implants that are like magnetic implants that she could, that she can like put a magnet on has no idea where they came from seem to be like operating on her body. Oh, so in she weird didn't ways. put them in there. No, 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 no. Oh, I thought she, she woke was just up some with, transhumanist who likes to feel, no, you know. She woke up, she woke up with these things inside of her body with no seams, no like no surgical scars of any kind and and swears up and down that they are like streaming visual information into her consciousness. Like she's writing a book, she's an artist. She's writing a book about uh physics and cosmology that she says the implants are telling her how to write i'll read that you know like <laughs> so it's like you know the, the, and that's just one person you know there's like there are like when you actually dive into the, the literature there's countless people so like i recently had another uh friend of mine and stewart's my g- former graduate advisor sean s bjorn harden yeah, on that. future fossils kind of what, yeah yeah so he yeah. He uh, he's put together, you know, the the sort of rudimentary gesture towards a, a unifying meta theory for this this phenomena, which um, he, you know, he he's somebody who you know taught me at the adult level how to like move you know, how to juggle multiple perspectives. And his, his work is really uh, profound and, and powerful, I think, because, you know, he's, he's making an effort to integrate a hundred and, you know, 150 different philosophical disciplines, you know, from, from, you know, uh, feminist critical discourse to indigenous thinking to, you know, Western philosophy and the philosophy of science. Um, and 
he's bringing it all together in a way that posits a radically different uh, structure for epistemology and ontology in our world where like things can pass in and out of, uh, you know, what we think of as like the real, you know, like where like reality, you know, can, can become more or less real can be infused and, and, you know, be, you know, go from something that's purely subjective to something that's objective and back. Yeah. You know, this, there's like fascinating with saying that. Yeah this talk of Batman being real and like oh, yeah. from an, in, from an informational, like from an information perspective, like I was just thinking about it, like Batman exists as, you know, um, configurations of matter in all of our minds as information there. And we can, if, if Batman does something in the movie that Batman wouldn't do, people would know like Batman as an entity, as this informational entity has a, has a nature, has, a, has, has some form of identity that is continuing on beyond what the, the creator would have ever have, imagined right like the creative it's funny that you bring that up because actually Zack snyder's batman uh in batman versus superman had like guns on his batmobile and people lost their minds over that they were like that's completely out of character you know that's not like machine guns you know for batman batman is like rapidly anti-gun and of course like there have been previous batmobiles with guns but they weren't like quite as like prominent i guess um but you're right that like this thing has a a uh, an a agency, life of its own. yeah, a agency. life of its own, yeah. yeah, and and so you know that this gets into you know Sean attaches the UFO phenomenon to uh, you know the, the the literature of the weird, uh, you know things such as like the tulpas out of Tibetan Buddhism, which are like thought forms that gain a life of their own. Like anybody who's watched uh, the show Twin Peaks, you know, knows that there's like, you can sort of invoke a discarnate entity that then sort of has its own ideas. And uh, we talk, I talk about sort of some of my experiences with that in that, that episode of future fossils with Sean. And at any rate, you know, I think that um, folks who want to get into a deeper inquiry with this question ought to listen to that and then ought to listen to uh Stuart's aliens and artists podcast because it's just chock full of extraordinary stories starting with his own where he had a you know a profound series of bizarre inexplicable experiences involving sort of mantis aliens over uh the last 10 years that you know guided him into not only uh you know, organizing this extraordinary group of people to make a film um, that was sort of like delivered to him by the mantis aliens, um, but also inspired him to like do enough research into this kind of phenomenon to inquire into why it is that the people who have these experiences end up being so profoundly inspired and take on these life-changing creative projects out of their encounters with them. You know, that it's like, it moves you uh, the way that a religious experience moves you to create. And like, what is that? And like, what is going on behind the scenes? Like, how is my individual creative act that was inspired by a UFO encounter, part of some sort of larger symphonic movement in the, in the historical and evolutionary forces, you know, or like uh, stories of our species and our planet. Like what, when you, when you put all of these pieces together, uh, what shape does it make that like all of these people are, are sort of instruments that are being played by what appear to be, aliens 
to us, you know? I mean, it's a very, very strange and, and curious question. And if, if you, um, if you shrink from that investigation because it's too weird, like I, I, uh, I have sympathy for that. <laughs> I, yeah. You know, it's not, it's like, you can't just like stare into the abyss all day, every day without eclipse glasses, which I highly recommend, you know, <laughs> learn proper shielding. Uh, as my, my friends, JF Martell and Phil Ford say on weird studies pro, uh, podcast, which I, I adore and I've, I've been on their show and they've been on mine, but they talk about if you're going to take up magic, you need to learn how to banish the things that you've created like you, you need to learn how to reassert the circle of protection around yourself, you know, and like be a human again, you know, rather than just like the, the flute for whatever. And you know, just like a more real example uh, would be just, you know, if you're Jim Carrey and you're like, or if you're a method actor, like find out a way to go back to normal. Right. Uh, yeah. Don't be Heath Ledger. Play. Don't let the Joker just kill you. Yeah. Right. And I think actually Robert Pattinson's kind of going through a similar thing now with, you know, as taking up the mantle of the Batman and now he has coronavirus. He's just, he's just talking like and it's all like, the time. Yeah. It's like, do you, you know, like Pattinson. you gotta be careful. You gotta be like, it's, it's a great example actually. Cause you know, the, the Joker, uh, in some way killed Heath Ledger and like this extremely dark vision of the Batman that's being filmed right now. Um, is threatening the life of Robert Pattinson. And it's like, you know, you've, my friends, like, please um, remember that it's sort of like the same question with, um, you know, the human institutional relationship. Well, it's all about the it's power like, of ideas. It's the power yeah. of ideas. Like, that's what it Don't, really is. Yeah. When, like, Daniel Pinchbeck, I remember in Breaking Open the Head, talked about, um, you know, being, you know, who are you feeding with your thoughts, you know, with what you believe is sort of its own entity, you know, an idea has a life of its own and it lives in the, the brains, minds, and behavior of all of the people who entertain it. And so like, there's a very real sense in which, um, you know, money is a God, you know, that controls the lives of its adherents. And, uh, and yet I guess all of us are sort of like a server that's like giving partial computational resources to like all of these, di like this pantheon of different stuff. And, and so some it's just, of them help us. So, like, it's this right. symbiotic relationship. It's not all negative, like the right. of individual freedom, for instance, uh, you know, have, have done a lot of good for us, but at the same time, like we are still in service to them. Like they, are in our minds, they cause us to act in certain ways and hopefully reproduce, you know, um, seed in the other, in the minds of others. Um, the problem is not all, not all ideas are, are equal and all, not all bear, you know, wonderful fruit that will nourish the future. Others just poison. Totally. So this is where, this is where I think like, you know, whether you talk about it as like a, a meme ohm, uh, or an, I like, uh, the ideobiome, you know, so oh, you yeah. get like a gotcha. microbiome, yeah, gotcha. right? Yeah. Like all of the little bacteria that live in you. Um, but you also have a, a, uh, a, an ideobiome, which is like all of the idea, all the thoughts you have. And so there's another great bumper sticker. I love, uh, that says, don't believe everything you think, you know, it's like, you've got to be willing to, um, well, like don't take antibiotics and kill every thought you have, like some radical uh, spiritual practitioners who are like anti ego and anti thinking like that. I don't know that that's healthy ultimately. Um, but like you got to get some distance 
from that. You got to, you got to be the unattachment, the willingness to uh, flush your system and take a new course of probiotics is like identical in some sense to the willingness to be, to change your mind when you are faced, you're confronted with evidence that requires you to do so, you know? And, and so, you know, that's, uh, that's threatening to the self that wants to narrativize continuity over the course of one's entire life. You know, it's threatening to the, like in the same way that evolution, there's a great piece I have pinned to the top of my Twitter profile right now about the way that science fiction has handled the epistemic uh, challenges presented by the theory of evolution. You know, the people are like, I'm not, my grandfather wasn't a monkey. And it's like the fact that things change, the fact that human, that human beings are not a fixed ontological category was and continues to be for many people, a very, very challenging and difficult idea that they're unwilling to accept their mental immune system is rejecting it, you know? Um, so, and I'm, you know, I just think uh, it's wise to, one, acknowledge that you have an immune system Two, that it doesn't, uh, you know, it's not keeping everything out, (laughs) you know, that like all of us are sort of, uh, in some sense or another host to all kinds of, uh, intellectual parasites. That's culture, you know? Yeah. And, and that, and that you can change and that you can, you can go through a, a detox and, you know, take, you know, again, it's like the garden, you know, like you don't want to just like, raise your entire yard, you know, you, you might want to do a little weeding or maybe, you know, you should consider the fact that the weeds growing there are, are you know, are like medicinal in yeah, some like way. Like the best weed in the world. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so at it, yeah, if, if you're not, yeah, if that's, if, you know, that's a, it's a, the elephant in the room of this conversation, probably when I talk, my, my buddy, Chris Katarna is always going like, <laughs> it's like, Oh, come on, man. Like, the, like this shit does not make sense. Um, but at any rate, dude, yeah, it's, this has been super fun. Yeah. I'm yeah. Really no. glad that we finally lined this up. Yeah. Me too. Um, where can people like, where can people find you online? Any part of, um, parting messages like, yeah, um, just- Whatever you want to. Yeah, I mean, I'm at Michael Garfield on Twitter and Instagram. Um, I'm I'm not terribly active on Instagram, except I share a lot of really interesting things in the stories there. But things my friends are doing. Um, Twitter is more like where I act like I, you know, smart ass. Um, I'm on. uh, I'm the real Michael Garfield at Facebook. Uh, If you want to follow my personal profile there. Uh, I have a, a Patreon account, patreon.com slash Michael Garfield, where I post, um, all, all of my work before I'm, I'm ready to just like piss it into the wind of social media. Uh, and, uh, future fossils podcast is my own show. Complexity podcast is the show I run for the Santa Fe Institute. That's a little bit more, uh, sober daylight science conversations and, you know, Still I'm less awesome. Huge fan. It is. I, I love it. I love it. Um, but it, you know, we're not going to really get into like, we're not going to seriously entertain the idea of aliens or talk about psychedelics on that show. Um, uh, but it's really, really good. If you want to understand, um, how the world's it, like elite systems researchers are thinking about things and, and like what they're discovering. Um, but I would say, yeah, just hit me up on, on Patreon. And I have like an, a cornucopia of free stuff up there, including a coloring book and like hours and hours yes, of music. It's awesome. It's awesome. So yeah. And, and obviously uh, if people want to reach out to me, I'm pretty easy to get a hold of. So please yeah. do. 
I would love to hear from you. Awesome. Well, Michael, uh, thank you very much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Sam.